Thank you, Amy and praise team. Let's try that again. There's actually um, a third verse to that song, Amy. And uh, the third verse of that song says something to the effect, when the night is surrounding me, you're still holding on. And it's, uh, you know, I, I, as I think about that song, I think about you and, and, and the things that we all go through, that the reality is oftentimes our troubles, our distresses can make us forget how good God is. And it's good to remind ourselves in this setting that, that we serve a good, good God. Amen? <laughs> um, I'm glad uh, that I have a Heavenly Father that loves me and that His love pursues me, it overtakes me. In uh, the Shepherd Psalm, David talks about this love of God that's pursuing. And, it's, and I heard a preacher talk one time about if we could just stop, <laughs> if we could just stop, Stop for a moment and let that love catch up with us. Um, Sunday mornings are a good time to stop, right? (laughs) This is is a good moment, and and that's the importance. This isn't my message. We don't have to start the timer yet, okay? Reset the timer back here for me. There we go. I have a timer back there for me to see how long I speak, okay? Aren't you guys glad that Pastor has a timer to see how long he speaks? But that's the importance of Sabbath. That's the importance of Sunday morning, is it's a time where we stop. Uh, I've heard, I heard it said that, that God is the audience in worship gatherings like that, and I understand what they're saying. But the truth is, we need to see God. <laughs> I don't know that God necessarily needs to see us. And we're not performing for Him, but, but, but we need to see Him, and we need to just let His love wash over us. You know, as I, as I look around this room and, and I see your faces, I realize that some of you are going through some things. And if that's true, say amen. <laughs> you need to experience God's love today, don't you? God loves you, and he's good. Well, now you can start the timer, okay? Yeah, sorry. Sorry, Ryan. <laughs> Who or what sets the agenda of your life? And, and when I talk about setting the agenda, I, I think the word that, that we don't use often, but, but the word is authority. What, what is the authority in your life? What, what sets the agenda, the direction of your life? What, what, what do you base your life upon? When you make decisions, are there principles, are there authorities, are there sources that help you when you make those determinations? Now, now there's many outside sources that determine our behavior. And, and, and in many ways, these outside sources, whether you want to call them authority or you don't want to call them authority, since they determine our behavior, they are an authority in your life. Okay, you're, you're driving down US 33, and you see Adam Hicks parked in the median in his police car, how many slow down even if you're going below the speed limit? You folks drive me crazy, okay? Just because a police car is in the median does not mean you have to go 10 miles an hour under the speed limit. You're, you're probably the kind of people that when you go past a wreck, you stop and get a good look and really back up traffic. You know, that's an authority. We, we see the police officer and we automatically, whether we're speeding or not, we slow down. 
You, you go to the gym and, and you have a trainer and the, and the trainer gives you a, a system, a, a program, a training program, and you follow that training program. That, that's an authority in your life. Your jobs. You have a job and you have a boss and you have, you have an employer and you have requirements. That is an authority in your life. You get married and all the married people say it, amen. There, there is an authority in your life. There, there is something that sets the agenda. You, you have kids. In many ways, kids set the agenda. They, they become the authority in your life. Spencer is now driving, and I am no longer a school bus driver. Praise the Lord. I have been set free. <laughs> kids can set an authority. We bought a dog. And this dog is now the authority in our house because if I don't cater to his whims, he does things in my house I don't want him to do. On a side note, we have a cheap dog for sale. No. <laughs> What's the point? Outside forces, outside authorities affect our choices and our behavior. And sometimes these are right, you know, it's good marriages and kids and dogs and training routines and all these things. It's good to obey the laws, not to speed. But God wants to set the agenda of our lives. That God wants to be the authority in your life and in my life. And one of the essential ways... I don't think it's the only way, because, because I believe as we gather in this place, as you gather with other believers, as the Spirit speaks, this is another way. But an essential way, an essential authority is Scripture. God's Word should be an authority. If we're going to be ordinary people following Jesus, if we're going to be Christian, we have to be people of the book. We have to be people of God's Word. God's Word must be an authority in our life. Nazarene Articles of Faith include this about the Bible. We, it says, we believe in the plenary inspiration of the Holy Scriptures, by which we understand the 66 books of the Old and New Testament given by divine inspiration, inherently revealing the will of God concerning us in all things necessary to our salvation so that whatever is not contained therein is not to be enjoined as an article of faith. In other words, it, it, it demonstrates to us how we are to be saved, how we are to find salvation, how are we to live this life that God has called us to. Now, personally, and I, and I believe I speak, I, I speak for the Nazarene church, salvation is more than just fire insurance. It's more than just keeping us out of hell. If, if we're holiness people, we believe that God wants to change how we live in this life as well. Amen? And I truly believe that, that my life has been better in this place, in this realm, in, on, on earth, because of what God has done in my life. That, that, that I am experiencing life and salvation now, and this life and this salvation is just not a here and there thing, but it begins now. 
that I'm living this life that, that God has in mind. There's more in store, amen? We were just talking, I think Dick and Karen and I was talking, you know, if God takes me home tomorrow, praise the Lord, I'll be ready. <laughs> and it's not going to be bad. It's going to be great. But in this life, in this life, God wants to give you hope and joy in life now. Allowing God to set the agenda of your life leads to life. When you allow God to set the agenda of your life, it leads to life, not just in the here and after, but the here and now as well. We live a better life. And, and so if we'll take what we, we talked about earlier, that means when we allow God through His Word to speak with authority into our life, it leads to life. Psalmist says it like this. This is Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. In the law of the Lord, he, he meditates day and night. His focus, her focus is in the Word of God, in the Scripture. It, it, it's central. It's essential to their life. And, and in it, they find life. And it's like a tree planted in a stream of water, fruitful. I read this, and, and I tried to find the quote. And, and I'm, I'm almost positive it's N.T. Wright. And, and so I was digging through uh, one of N.T. Wright's books. N.T. Wright is an Anglican preacher in, in England. And he writes a lot of different things. Some of it's pretty good. And, he, and I couldn't find the quote, but, but the significance of it or, or what he was saying was something to this effect. We can look to make Scripture relevant to our lives or we can make our lives relevant to Scripture. Um, see, see, there's a different perspective. Either we can dig through this book and we can say, well, this, this is relevant to me or, or that is relevant to me, but, but that's something that's not relevant to me. Or, or, or we can take his book and say, I am going to, I'm going to make my life relevant to what you say in your word. It's an attitude. It's, it's a perspective. It's, it, it's a, an approach to God's Word. Last week we talked about Joseph and, and, and we answered the question, how far would you go to be part of God's story? And, and, and today we're going to ask a similar question. I, I think it's, it's maybe the, the, the flip side of the same coin and, and the question would be, how far would you go to fulfill Scripture? In other words, how, how far does this book go in your life? And we're going to talk about the journey to Bethlehem and, and the manger. And once again, we have purchased some high-tech props. Um, this is a pretty big manger. The manger represents Bethlehem. I don't think this lights up. Uh, so, so, so we've got high-tech props to keep you guys right. Aren't you guys impressed? You don't look impressed. 
I think we've even got shepherds for next week. You guys excited about the shepherds? Yeah, yeah, I am. How far were Joseph and Mary willing to go to fulfill Scripture? Uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. The census be taken of, the, of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to, to, Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. That's a, that's a precious story to us, right? We, we, we read that story. We hear that story. How many will read that story on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day? At some point, you'll read that story with your kids and your family, and you'll spend some time and reflect on this 90-mile this journey from, from Nazareth to Bethlehem that, that Mary and Joseph had to make. You know, it's one of those precious stories, but, but it's a story that scholars question. There's been all sorts of questions raised historically as to what is going on in this, this little narrative. And it's interesting that, that Luke is the, the one that includes this. It's, it's not really included in Matthews and Mark and John. Don't talk about the birth narratives. And Luke includes this. And, and scholars question it for a lot of reasons. Uh, they, they, they question it for years because of the timing of Quirinius. It, it, they said it's not the right timing, and, and there was a Quinarius that was a governor at a certain time, and, and it wasn't the right timing for the birth of the baby. But, but later on, they have found things to suggest that Quinarius was not governor one time, but he was governor multiple times. So, so the more study that's been done has verified that this guy could have been governor at the time of the birth of Jesus. Some question the ideal of a census at all and, and suggest that there were no censuses being taken like this at the time of Jesus' birth. But then further studies, further research, further historical discovery has found evidence of almost an ongoing census taking place by the Romans throughout their occupied world. But the deeper question is, why did they go to Bethlehem? This is a... 90-mile journey with a pregnant 13- or 14-year-old. It was hard, and it was dangerous. I want you to imagine that Josh and Chelsea, we make them walk to Cincinnati uh, from Marysville in the cold. It was hard. It was dangerous. And, and why Bethlehem? You say, well, Pastor, he was compelled, and... The truth is, there is no evidence that the Romans would require people to go to an ancestral town. See, they, they weren't interested. And I know some of you are saying, no, that's not what it says, Pastor. Put your thinking cap on just for a little bit, okay? Bear with me. Let's, let's work through this. See, see, the Romans were pragmatic. This was an income tax 
tax or census. And they were concerned with where they owned property. And so for Joseph and Mary to go to Bethlehem when they worked and they lived in Nazareth did not further the means of the Romans. They were trying to collect money and they wanted to know where people lived, not where their grandpa lived. And so there's no historical evidence that that, that they would have required them to go to an ancestral town. Now, now maybe the the way the the, the Jews owned property and and the fact that, that... by, by law, really didn't pass out of the hands uh, of the families. Perhaps Joseph went to, to Bethlehem because this is where he owned property. And I, and I guess there is some chance that could be possibly true, but it's not likely. So you see, the Romans weren't interested in everybody going all over Israel. They wanted to know where they lived and what they owned and the properties they had and the businesses that they conducted. If you're reading a paraphrase, it'll say that they returned to their ancestral town. But the literal translation of this text is not ancestral town, but they went to their own town. So why did Joseph go to Bethlehem if the Romans didn't require him to go? Maybe, like I said, it's because he still owned property there. But, but at this time, after the, after the exile, this isn't likely. Maybe it's possible, but it's not likely. Maybe it's because he wanted to be connected to King David. But, but as I look at Joseph, Joseph doesn't have this kind of personality. It's not in keeping with how he's described in Scriptures. And I guess, as I think about it, if Joseph's whole family is there, this story becomes even more problematic to me in that this young girl is forced to have a baby in a manger, not in the house. What kind of family would be there with Joseph that would say, okay, Mary, no matter the scandal, go to the manger. We don't want you in the house. Maybe with Mary, but Joseph, this righteous man. I mean, you get to this level of rejection that hurts to the core, that makes no sense. Where's the hospitality? And all scholars tell us this. Only Joseph had to go. If if Joseph had to go to Bethlehem, only he had to go, and not this 14-year-old, 13-year-old who was expecting a child. So why did Mary go? Can I make a suggestion to you? And and, and I know we've heard this story over and over, and we've just thought, well, the Romans compelled them to do it, and they had to do it. What if Mary and Joseph made the difficult journey because Scripture said Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem? They intentionally fulfilled Scripture in their life. It wasn't about Romans, it wasn't about being forced, but it was about Mary and Joseph saying, this is God's son, and he is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Later on, they go to Egypt. And, and, and that's, a, that's an interesting story too to me, because they go to Egypt from Bethlehem. The, the only place that Herod was killing babies was where? Bethlehem. 
Why not Nazareth? Or, or why not Jerusalem? Or, or why not somewhere local? Why, why did they go to Egypt? Once again, it's scriptural. Out of Egypt, I will call my son. Say, well, Pastor, so they're intentionally doing these things so the baby meets the markers? Doesn't that make it less? You know what? It makes it more to me. <laughs> it makes me see a family that was allowing God to set the agenda of their life through His Scripture. That they were consumed and concerned with fulfilling Scripture in their lives. And they were allowing God to set this agenda. And this led to life. But, but there's a second thing to this as well. What if Mary would have said no? What if Mary had said, hey, I'm eight months pregnant, Joseph. You go on your own. I am not walking 90 miles to Bethlehem. And how many pregnant women or women that were pregnant at one time could give me an amen to that, right? I wouldn't want to do it, and I'm not even pregnant. I just look like it. What if Mary had said no? This is the kind of things preachers think about in their study when they're considering the Scripture. But I do. What if Mary had said no? What if Joseph would have said no? Would this have altered the identity of Jesus? <laughs> this would have still been the Messiah, the Son of God. But this decision would have altered others' ability to see who he was. See, their choice led to life, and their choice confirmed God's plan to others. In other words, they could look at this baby and they could say, hey, he meets all the markers. He's born in the right place. He comes out of Egypt. This is the Messiah. And this was because of the choice of Mary and Joseph. Our choices affect others. Your choices will affect others. Whether you choose to align your life with God's Word will not only affect you, it will affect others. When I turned 40 and Spencer was first born, uh, I, I was playing basketball. And, you know, I, I, was, I was still a basketball fiend there. I was playing a lot and had some 20-year-old guy, a head faked, and he went up in the air, and I went to the rim, and I felt this pop, and I thought somebody had thrown a basketball off the back of my leg, and I turned and looked at, well, who would trip me from the back? And everybody was just looking at me, and I knew instantly what I'd done. I had ruptured that Achilles tendon on the back of your ankle. Feel, feel it, that, that, that big, thick thing on the back of your ankle. That thing popped, and it was gone. So I called Terry. My sweet, loving wife was so mad at me, she could have killed me. You know, that we had a newborn. I worked in Dayton, Ohio. In her mind, she was thinking, I'm going to have to drive this, this guy. <laughs> Back and forth to Dayton with a newborn. Now, she didn't have to. You know what I did? I just hooked this leg over the console and drove with my... Don't tell Adam that. (laughs) 
my, our choices. My, my choice had an effect on my family. Our choices affect others. Allowing God to set the agenda leads to life and confirms God's work in our lives to others. In other words, when we live our lives in alignment with God's word, other people will benefit other than ourselves. So the question is, how far would you go to fulfill scripture with your life? How, how far are you willing to go? Um, you know what I've noticed in our culture? There's a great deal of importance placed on feeling it. Amen? We live in a feeling society. We live in a feeling age. That, 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 that if I don't feel like doing something and I do it anyhow, somehow it's lesser. And I think we sometimes allow what I think is a wrong way of perceiving things to affect how we live towards God's will. See, I think we should be worried less about what we feel and more worried about being obedient to God's word and allowing God to take care of the feeling. Amen? I think generosity. Well, pastor, the, the Bible says the Lord loves a cheerful giver. <laughs> he does. But he also loves people that are obedient to his word and are generous and givers. That, that is the importance of tithing. T tithing is a habit. And, and I don't think it's a habit that ends in itself, but I believe tithing is a habit that allows us to begin to let go of the tyranny of material things and let go of things. And through our tithing, I think God wants to move us to generosity. Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't always, when I tithe, I got to tell you, I don't get the, the warm fuzzies every time. But I do it because I believe I'm being obedient to God's word. And I believe in that obedience, God can bless me and it leads to life and God can use it to confirm his plan in the life of others. Thanksgiving. That, that's a hard one. Amen? Because there's times in our life that, that there's, it doesn't feel like there's a lot to be thankful for. But, but the problem is usually we're focused on one or two things. Now, I know none of you ever get down, all right? Every once in a while, I'll get down. Um, anybody have a, a, a time when, you, when you're like in a bad mood and then you trace back why you were in the bad mood? And, it, and, and when you trace it back, it's something so completely goofy that it makes no sense. You know, you know you're in this bad mood and you realize you're in a bad mood be, because you you bought something at the restaurant two days ago and, and it wasn't in the bag when you got home, right? Anybody ever have that happen other than me? Please, somebody raise your hand. You make me feel insane. Yeah, thank you, Tony. See, oftentimes, oftentimes it's, it's not strong enough. Almost every time we have more to be thankful for than upset about. And so Thanksgiving, I believe it's not that, okay, I'm going to, I feel so thankful. It's great when you feel like that. But Thanksgiving is an action that adjusts our attitude. And it's something we can do in obedience, particularly when maybe things aren't going the way we want them to go. Serving. 
Well, pastor, I'll serve. I, you know, I just want, I just want to feel like I want to serve. <laughs> it could be that it's in your serving that God begins to give you that attitude and that heart. But, but, but I tell you, folks, until we start doing it, we'll never get to the point of God moving in our hearts in the way that allows us to feel better about it. <laughs> Rejoicing. Oh, joy. Joy's a hard one, right? Somebody say amen. Joy's a hard one because we connect joy with what? Happiness. And there's nothing wrong with happiness. I want to be happy. You want to be happy. happy. But joy is deeper than happiness. And rejoicing goes beyond when we feel happy. We're rejoicing is modeled by Paul and Silas in a, in a prison cell and that they're giving God thanks and they're rejoicing even though they don't have the outside elements say, hey, you should be sad and down. But they make the choice to rejoice. Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe you just need to make the choice, I'm going to rejoice. <laughs> this is the day that the Lord has made I will rejoice and be glad in it. <laughs> Maybe it's just a choice that we make. In my looking through the N.T. Wright book, it says, but in Scripture itself, God's purpose is not just to save human beings, but to renew the whole world. That God's got this greater thing in mind. And as we live and we fulfill Scripture with life, we join God in renewing the world. That's pretty, pretty exciting to me. Let me ask you two questions. And the first one is so simple that I, that I shouldn't even have to ask it. If God's Word is the authority, are you reading it? Are you reading it? If you were going to measure, and this is completely unfair. I know this is completely unfair. This is not a fair way to phrase it, and I'm sorry, but I'm going to do it anyhow. <laughs> Can you see how apologetic I am? Because, and I'll tell you, it's not fair to me, because by its measure, I fall short. But just something to think about. If you measured how much television you watched, to how much time you spent in God's word, what would be the authority in your life? Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, or God's word? If you measured, who's a Facebook, don't raise your hand. Who's, some of you are Facebook trollers, right? You know, your, your Facebook, you know, you, just, you spy on people through Facebook. All hearts, all heads. Now, every once in a while, I'll do it, scroll through. If you measured how often you spent Facebook trolling compared to reading God's Word, where are you spending more time? Which is the authority? Are you reading God's Word? And I got to tell you, I think we... I think we sell it short. I do. Uh, th th this year, I, I've been very intentional. And, and you know, I'm, 
I've been very intentional in, in spending far more time in God's word than I ever have before, and there's value in it. God speaks through his word. And, and sometimes I believe we sell it short. We, we think, well, if, if, I, if I do this, and this is not a guilt trip. I just want you to consider this. We, we say, oh, we, we do this 15-minute devotional, and we read what Max Licato writes and, and read a short snippet or scripture, or, or even if we get through the Bible in a year, and you, know, you, get, you can get through the Bible in a year reading 15 minutes a day. You, you can and, and we do that amount of, of time in the Word, and we, we begin to think that is sufficient. That's enough. I've done my part. See, I believe if God's Word is an authority, we'll spend significant time in God's Word. Amen? And then are there biblical instructions <laughs> you're struggling with? Are you struggling with forgiveness? Is there a relationship that, that, that you're just struggling with forgiving somebody? If God's, word, if God's word is an authority in our life, folks, we can't get past. We cannot, we cannot be unforgiving. It's impossible. And... and for, for, for many of us, in my life, I have had times where my spiritual development was being stunted by a spirit of unforgiveness. What about generosity? All these things are contained in God's Word. I, I, I'm not making these up. These, these, this, this isn't what the church board got together and said, hey, this is the way people should live. This is what God's Word gives us. And generosity, the, the giving of our resources to others, it is in God's Word. And if you're struggling with it, if you're failing to obey God's Word, it will stunt, it will stop your spiritual growth. Rejoicing. <laughs> this is a hard one. Because folks, I know some of you are going through some very difficult things. And, and I am convinced of this. The way through difficult circumstances is rejoicing and thanksgiving. It, it's the only way through. And some of us are so stopped by our circumstances that we've stopped giving God thanks for the good things He's given us, and we've stopped rejoicing, and we've stopped praising. All heads bowed, all eyes closed. Let's bring the lights down, Samuel. I'm going to say a short prayer with you, and then Pastor Bob's going to come and close us in prayer. Our altars are always available. And, um, you know, there's no guilt in the altar. And, and you know, may, maybe God's speaking to you about something completely different than, than what we've even talked about. And I, I believe that the Spirit's active. And so just be responsive. Um, I'm going to say a prayer, and then I just ask that you be obedient to whatever God would um, lay in your heart. Lord, help us. We believe. We believe in your word, and we believe its authority. Help us now as we wrestle for two or three minutes with this. Uh, to, to allow you to speak.